Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Merrow. This season is sponsored by Webs. Webs, America's yarn store, is your source for everything you need for your next weaving project. Webs carries a wide selection of yarns, looms, tools, and accessories, and you can save up to 25% every day with the Webs discount. Visit yarn.com for more info. I'm here with Matthew Nagy, the creator of The Modern Maker. Welcome. Hi, hi. Thank you so much. So, you know, I first knew of you as a designer of knitwear, but I went to your website, which is The Modern Maker, and I found a whole lot of material that is about vintage, historically accurate clothing. So can you tell me a little bit about the range of handwork that you are involved in? Uh, Absolutely. So... It, I mean, I started making things when I was really, really young and very quickly developed a taste for doing things uh, historically. And I think some of that had to do with the fact that I just checked books out of the library and I didn't really pay attention to when they were published. So the interesting stuff to me was always older. And there's a whole lot of interrelating things, but what ended up happening is I learned how to sew at a pretty young age and then uh, ended up being a tailor's apprentice in a suit shop when I was 17 years old. And it was really fun. Um, I really enjoyed sewing for a living, but I had also simultaneously been like nurturing this, uh, this passion for historical costume, but because one was costume and one was sort of fashion tailored menswear, I didn't, I don't know why, but mentally I didn't really connect the two. Uh, So at one point somebody handed me a book for my birthday and this book was uh Wandale Sega's uh it's a Spanish book it's called Geometria y Traza and it's a pattern book like a tailor's cutting album from 1589 and a publishing house had done a book about it and then reprinted it and translated it. And it was the first sort of aha moment I had, like what I was doing for a living as a tailor's apprentice and this historical thing were really part of one continuum of, of fashion basically. And so learning more and more about how things were cut, because I was also trying to become a pattern maker. I was really fascinated by the geometry and all of those things. So learning how all of that related meant that I could just start using all of these handcrafts that I've been doing since I was a little kid and like start putting them together into clothes. And I had run the gamut when I went through the craft section at the library. I just started at one end and went to the other, no matter what the craft was, and just learned how to make everything that the books told me. So when you first learned to sew, did you learn uh, on a machine or by hand? I, well, my first stitches were by hand and that has to do with my mother was making a dress for my sister and I was probably four or five years old, maybe coming up on six. I don't know, but I kept bugging her like kids do because I wanted attention and she was just like, just sit out, sit out, just put, here's a needle and thread, just put this together on this line. And she literally took two pieces of fabric and drew a line on them and just said, stitch right here. And I said, okay. And then I came back and I said, mommy, I'm done. I need another thing. (laughs) So um, that's where it all really started. My mother was very, very creative and crafty. And, you know, art has been part of my family for generations. My father had the very, or my grandfather, excuse me, had the very first television instructional art show 
in the 40s and 50s. And you can still watch it on YouTube. It's actually really fun. But he, because he was such a character and so well-known and everybody was like, ooh, Grandpa, you know, Johnny Pops on TV, we all paid attention and we were all artists and my mother's a painter and my father's a musician. So, you know, just making things and creating stuff just came out of every pore. It's just the way the family works. So I learned to sew at a very young age and then... It didn't, it was not until I was, you know, in my late teens where I started realizing that, oh, hey, I could make a living at this. Didn't realize that it was never going to be a very good living because tailors don't make that much money. But I still loved what I do. So, you know. So your grandfather, you know, he sounds like Bob Ross. Yes, except Bob Ross came later. My grandfather uh-huh. uh, had a TV show called Learn to Draw with John Nagy. And TV was not color yet. It was still black and white. And he would do little charcoal drawings on newsprint. And you could buy his art kits. You can actually still buy his art kits. Um, and he would just take you through the process of sketching. And it was always just black and white because that's all the TV had to offer. And the programs were 20 minutes long. And He shows you what you're drawing first, and then he shows you a blank piece of paper, and then he starts putting the chalk down and teaches you how to do it. And I have met so many artists throughout my life that were like, yeah, your grandfather taught me how to draw, and I became an artist because of him. And his philosophy was that anyone can do it. You know, at the time in the 40s, art was a scene, right? Like there was this this energy around it. And it was a little bit snooty. And so for him to come in and kind of aim his work at this sort of what they called middle brow culture at the time um, was a big deal. And he wasn't particularly well liked by the fine art community because he was, you know, teaching every plebe in the world how to draw. And they like, they didn't appreciate him for that. So I feel the same way about tailoring techniques in that the trade of tailoring is always so protected and so hidden. And, you know, it wasn't even until I think just about 10 years ago when there was a book that came out that even talked about ironwork, which is like the primary tool that tailors use to make clothing like magically flow over a human body. And Nobody talked about it until recently because so many tailors are just dying with the knowledge, not having had any apprentices with them. And so someone finally wrote about it and said, no, when you make a jacket, you have to do this thing. And it's really like the thing that makes it work. So it's not only that there's a family tradition of being an artist, but there's a family tradition of teaching others how how to do the very complicated, special thing that you work on. Yes. Yeah. And And just to go a little bit further with that, there's also a tradition of taking things that typically are well hidden by gatekeepers and opening the doors and giving it to people. That I think is is at the heart of my philosophy and the way that I teach. And when I say gatekeeping, I'm talking about things like, you know, you know, women tend to be kept out of the trade or at least were until very recently. And even now there's not a particularly warm welcome for women who want to be tailors, especially if they are wanting to be tailors to make menswear. You know, oh, it's fine if women want to make women's wear, but you want to make men's wear, ooh, that there could be a problem. So beyond that, though, when it comes to like each technique, each technique in and of itself isn't particularly complicated, but as a whole, there's a whole lot of them and you need to understand the order in which to use them. And that is often used as a way to be like, oh, well, it's too complicated for you to understand. And 
it becomes its own kind of of gatekeeping, like you're not worthy of learning it. Well, and the the fact of being an apprentice, we don't think of that as being a very 20th or 21st century way of learning a skill, but that's how you approach tailoring. Well, that was how I approached it at first. Now, mm-hmm. you know, to be 100% transparent, I have never like passed the guild master tailor standards or anything like that. And most of that is because I focus on historical tailoring, not modern tailoring. If I were a suit maker and if I had continued down that path, then yes, I would have like an actual certification from the Guild of Tailors. But what I do is so different from that, even though I use all the same techniques, I teach the same techniques and I can make a damn fine modern jacket. I just don't don't want to do that as my whole career, like just making the same modern jacket over and over and over again every day for hundreds and thousands of people (laughs) Uh, as an artist. So you have access to this whole range of costume history. You know, you think about it, people who are tailors can generally only make what people are wearing now, but you are making things for people who were dressing the last three or four centuries. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first Taylor's albums were published in the 1580s, and anything before that was hand-drawn, and there are very, very, there's a few references to them, but there are no actual publications, I think, prior to that time period, which, for people who study historical clothing, that's really, really frustrating. Like, there's this clear, like, divider boundary, you can't go past it into the past and find real good patterns. And and even in as far as back as the 15th century, like there's just not that many clothes that have survived either. So before 1588, everything gets a little <laughs> bit thin, both in the archaeological record and with the literary record. So, you know, we rely on paintings. Mm-hmm. People have gotten so specialized now that most people who sew or make clothing or do any sort of handwork buy the different parts, and then they just do their part. But you're interested in everything from spinning and weaving and knitting and and sewing by hand and and lace making. Yes. And that to me is where all of the fun is. Because as a child, I connected more with the fiber crafts first, right? Sure, I knew I was learning how to sew, but I was more interested in weaving at the time. Like I remember probably... This is probably like elementary school going into junior high. I remember every summer um, when school was out because we had three months off back then, uh, I would take my little weaving loom that I had, my dad had purchased me this little inkle loom and I would warp it up and I would just sit on my bed listening to classical music and just trying to figure out how to weave as quickly as possible and as accurately as possible. And I would just do belt after belt after belt. Like by the time the summer was done, I would just like give them out as gifts because I just had spent so much time doing them. And I would do that every summer with a different craft. I would spend a whole summer just mastering something else that's new because, of course, I was a kid. So very ADD kind of mentality. So one year it would be knitting, another year it'd be weaving and some other time. It was macrame at one point or tatting even. I remember tatting was... Like, I was so fascinated by the flip of the knot with tatting. The flip is such a thing. It's a thing. It really is. And understanding how tatting worked eventually helped me understand 17th century needle laces, which was something that uh, when I got 
very involved in history, I was truly fascinated by these just exquisite pieces of lace who were so complex, made with such fine threads. And I just didn't understand how it could possibly have been made. And I tried to learn. I, it took me almost 20 years just of messing with it to figure out anything that was even remotely useful. And then somebody introduced me to a book that had just come out by a lace group in Italy that had finally documented this process of making the lace and the techniques that were used. And it was to like, to me, that was just like the tablets handed down from above because I finally had answers to all of the negative space questions. I was like, how the heck are you supposed to anchor here? You know, none of the 19th century methods really seemed to work well for this 17th century lace. And you know, you could learn how to make 19th century lace. There are hundreds of books about that. But, you know, you want something older? Yeah, you're out of luck. It's funny. I mean, when it comes to the Victorians did an amazing job of, you know, preserving all of their needlecraft. And we have so many volumes of weldons from everything from ironwork, tatting, crafts for the bazaar. But, you know, something a little bit older, it seems like it really was, you know, you either you either got somebody to show you or or that was it. Yeah. You know, thankfully, with with the at least the pattern cutting, the government of Spain commissioned these books to be written and published so that we had access to their patterns, and they actually used them to regulate the amounts of cloth that were consumed to make certain garments. It's a whole different story. But there are lace pattern books where there's designs that you can copy, but there's no instruction on how to do it. There are very few images of people making lace, but what images there are were a huge help in learning how to make it because like, I had no idea at first that it was actually secured to any kind of foundation. I just assumed that it was, I just assumed that it was done kind of like tatting sort of in the air and kind of magically turned into the lace. Um, and I had no idea that it was sewn down onto a foundation to develop. So does all of, do all of these things come together in your work or are they all just sort of various elements of things that you work on? Like, is there ever a piece that involves a, a whole lot of them or is it just, I'm interested in, you know, I'm interested in knitting and I'm interested in needle lace and I'm going to sort of work on these separately? I think what it ended up being for me was I wanted to create an entire head to toe look that was as perfect as I could get it. And that meant that I had to know how to weave the right kind of trim to go on the clothes. I had to know how to make the right kind of button to close the garment with. I had to know how to stitch the right kind of buttonhole. I had to know how to make the right kind of lace for the linen collar and for the cuffs. And I had to know how to make the right kind of hat. So every little aspect of it came into play. And there, I mean, I'm not the only one. There are lots of other people out there that, that have collected all of these crafts. People often tell me that they feel like I've taken it to a, a, a weirdly high level. You know, I know that I'm not normal, <laughs> but for me, like if I'm trying to really create something that looks like I stepped out of a painting, every one of those elements is important. It has led me to learn how to do leather work. Like I have to make a pair of leather gloves to stitch them by hand, but not only that, but to make them correctly for the time period, because Glove making in the 19th century is different than glove making in the 17th century or the 16th century. So as this has progressed, every so often I'll be like, well, this is a thing that I don't know how to do. And I need to know how to do it if I want to make the next outfit look even better. 
and like embroidery is one of those things i have never liked to embroider and right now i'm working on a fully embroidered 17th century jacket that needs to be done by november so not only am i learning how to do it i'm learning how to do it really efficiently so that i can get this thing done amid working full-time amid running a business you know so it is uh it all does come together to create one giant head-to-toe work of textile art so do you have a particular period that you have an affinity for? You've mentioned the 17th century a few times. Is that something that you're especially interested in? I have been for a long time. Now, I've been interested in what we call it the early modern period. And I've been interested in that time period pretty much since I was handed that book. I think I was 18 when I was handed the first Taylor's Cutting Manual. There's so many more of them that every time I would find a new one, I would learn something new. And because they're written in old Spanish and I grew up speaking Spanish and have a fascination with linguistics as well, that it all worked out for me to translate them. And so it has become my favorite time period because every time I crack open one of these books, I learn something new. I translate something with a slightly different nuance and it has an even more clarified meaning uh, or, you know, each one of these books has hundreds of patterns in it too. So sometimes I just open the book up and I'm like, I've been looking at this book for 20 years and I've never seen this pattern before. How could I have missed it? So because it's this never-ending supply of new and fascinating things to learn, I just kind of stay with it. Lately, I've been pushing myself to branch out quite a bit more. I've always done lots of modern clothes. I've started making my own clothes, I think, when I was 10, 11 years old. I started knitting my own sweaters and sewing my own shirts and things. So modern clothing has also been a constant throughout all of this. It's just a very different way of thinking. So I don't always connect the two, but they're definitely connected. So I I have to confess that like a lot of people, I'm sure, um, when I think about these historical periods, I tend to think of, is the 17th century, is that, that's not Jane Austen, is it? It's before that? No, it's 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 considerably, but Jane Austen is uh, around you know eight the early eighteen hundreds. That's the re- Regency time period, which is also another favorite of mine. Uh, but the early modern period, we're looking at you know mid sixteenth century into mid seventeenth century is really the early modern period, and then it goes into you know where you can start looking at things like Baroque time period and Rococo and all of those. The early modern period is what most people, if you're keeping kind of an Anglo-centric version of it, most people call it the Elizabethan era. But because all of my work is studied in Spanish and I have friends that study it in German and, and, you know, Polish, like there's, there are manuals from other countries, but Spain had the best ones as far as I'm concerned. So to me, it was easier to call it the early modern period, which is, you know, sort of the museum accepted terminology for the era. So I have a number of friends. I have not yet watched Bridgerton, but I have a number of friends who watched Bridgerton and all of them, you know, tut tut and are not quite sure what they think of the costuming. And and I think when most of us watch these costume air quotes, costume dramas, you know, we have this sort of, well, it was old sort of an idea. But you have a much more precise understanding of what actual people were wearing at that time. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to get my take on Bridgerton, I will tell you that the costumes are not meant to be perfectly authentic. They're meant to give uh, an essence of the feeling. Since I also work in film and television, I understand costume designers and the language that they use to get a 
a character's clothing to convey who they are. And that's something that I think a lot of people who are interested in historical clothing, they get really kind of offended that designers don't don't make it absolutely perfect because they could if they wanted to. Well, the problem is, is they're also beholden to producers and directors and they have to satisfy everyone. Like the costume department is somewhat lower in the hierarchy and therefore we tend to make everyone else's vision come true. And the designer is often caught between how the actor wants to portray the character, how the director thinks they should look and what the producers think will sell. So you have all of these pressures on the costumes. And I think what they did with Bridgerton was actually quite genius because the costumes 1,000% told you exactly what you needed to know about every single individual the second you saw them. I mean, there were clothes that had zero business being in the Regency time period, but it, it is a fictional story set in a historical time period in an alternate reality so like there's no reason for it to be perfectly authentic it doesn't have to be in order for it to be really entertaining but i'll tell you what i made one video for youtube about sewing a regency men's shirt and it immediately got like 10 times the likes and views than anything i've done from the early modern period because everybody had watched it and everybody's really excited about it you know, it's, and speaking of trends, yeah, you know, I think that there's always people are always looking to historical material for for new movies and novels and things like that. But I think this is a moment where people are really excited about making by hand. Yeah, this has been a, a new and growing trend. There's part of it is because of the pace of the world, people want to slow down. So making things by hand, especially for younger people, you know, I, I hate talking about the generational names, but like for millennials and people that are younger than that, making things by hand is a way to chill out. It's a way to put the phone down. It's a way to occupy your hands so you're not endlessly scrolling on Facebook. You know, there's a lot of, of reasons why it it sings a good tune to people. And, and another factor is that uh, millennials and younger folks also have a much harder financial time than people in my generation have had. And that means that they often can't afford a sewing machine, but a pack of hand sewing needles and a spool of thread is completely available. And they can recycle a piece of clothing or mend something. And this idea of understanding how to take care of yourself with handwork is is growing and there's a lot of satisfaction in it too i think the first time that i made my fully hand fully hand sewn 17th century suit i just like i put it on and it just felt different it there's something about it like maybe the fabrics had softened through so much extra handling or i you know because i'm stitching it by hand i'm taking so much more care in how it fits and what i think it's going to look like but you put it on and you can tell like this is hand sewn to put it on and walk around knowing there's not a single stitch of machine work in it anywhere is for someone that's nuts about history. It's also kind of a, an exciting feeling. Yeah, I bet. Well, it's also, uh, I think for a lot of people, you know, sewing or making things for someone else is a showing caring. I was, I was reading recently that George Clooney is sewing for his children Uh huh. and the thought of, of people, making things for their kids, not only, or, or, or their spouses or loved ones or, or whatever, not only from a point where we used to have to do that, but as something that we can do for each other now. Yeah. And it's a, it's a nice contemporary way of caring. I think so too. And it, you know, it fell out of fashion for about 40 or 50 years 
And I'm so glad to see that it's coming back. I mean, making things for your family was, was a part of life back in the day. And I think that it's extra wonderful because I've met a lot of men who are sewing for their families. And, you know, while I don't particularly address gender roles in crafting because I've spent so much of my life pushing back against them, I don't think it's really fair to talk about them. However, as a culture, we tend to to think that men shouldn't be as creative, right? Like, I mean, it's a cultural norm here that that if a if a man is creative, it is interesting and fresh and new. And <laughs> I just, you know, like one of my friends in my neighborhood, like his wife doesn't sew, but he makes all of their Halloween costumes and they go out in theme as a family and they look fantastic. And he really, really enjoys it. My dad made me a flower girl dress and he made me a sleeping bag once. So yes, in my, in my family, it was my dad who who did the handwork. But I think it's, you know, there's also a certain, you know, fascination with famous people doing things we do. So it's George Clooney sewing for his kids or, you know, Amanda Seyfried, you know, knitting or things like that. There's like, oh, the stars, they're just like us. <laughs> yeah, I really like that too. You know, you said that being in the costume department is a is just a small part of a large production, but you're actually involved with film and television. Yeah. Dressing people in a professional way. Right. Are they all dressed in 17th century attire? Uh, when I'm working on film and television, no. Yes. Uh, most <laughs> most of the stuff that I've worked on is cop shows. So I, you know, it's New York. They film all the cop shows here. We're starting to get more historical dramas happening here. So that hopefully I'll finally get a period show. Like someone with my skill set should really have one. But generally speaking, like everything is what we we always nickname it suits and patches because you're sewing patches onto cop uniforms and ranger uniforms and. You know, and then everybody's wearing a suit, so you're just doing cuffs and hems all the time. But I've had some really interesting experiences. Like I got to do a couple of days on Boardwalk Empire on the last season, and that was really fun. Um, I almost, almost was the tailor for Dickinson, but uh, the costume designer changed, and they went with somebody else. You know that those kinds of opportunities are always coming, and you're like, please, 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 let it happen, and then it just. It, you know, that goes to the, you know, the five historical tailors that have been doing it for the past 20 years that everybody knows. Like, I'm the new kid on the block. Nobody knows who I am. So that day will come, though. A lot of people who are making things by hand do it to express ourselves. But, you know, costume is also how we say who we are. And so, you know, you're when you're making stuff for yourself, you're saying, I'm interested in 17th century. And if you're working on a cop show, you're saying, I don't know, I'm I'm the tough guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if are I'm working there, are there nuances show, in I'm, there? <laughs> I think that yes. <laughs> I think if I'm working on a cop show, I'm saying I have bills to pay. <laughs> that's that's what it is for me. You know, I, doing what I do for a living. You know, when I'm not working on a show, I'm literally just in the studio all the all day, every day, having a grand old time, just making stuff. I've recently started releasing PDF downloadable patterns so that you can make 17th century clothing using patterns that are either developed from surviving garments or from these pattern manuals. But it's very much like a cut and sew kind of uh, pattern. So being able to give people access to those patterns is, is very important to me. I will say that expressing myself, whether I'm doing 17th century clothing or whether it's modern, is all part of the same language for me. For the longest time, I would shop for my modern fashion and then 
have a grand old time making my historical stuff. And two things happen. One of them, I taught for a few years at Parsons University of Fashion. And the language of expressing yourself through clothing became a lot more important for me to to demonstrate. I'm sure I know about it. Yes, I can teach it. But if I'm not personally doing it, how am I supposed to teach a student? How am I supposed to be believed by a student that I that I believe in the language of fashion and what it really means? And I think as time has gone on, especially with a greater conversation about how destructive the fashion industry is, people are also turning toward making their own clothes as a way of pushing back at the fashion industry and saying, I'm not going to contribute to as much destruction as it means if I buy a $5 t-shirt. I'm going to make a shirt for myself. And, and that's my way of pushing back at that. And so during the pandemic, I had a big shift in my mentality about how I express myself through my clothing. And I said, you know what? I absolutely love historical dress. I love how I feel in historical dress. And there are days when I will walk out of my apartment in a full 17th century suit with all the accessories. I'll walk the three miles to get to my studio I'll work here all day and then I'll walk home. I'll go to dinner in it. Like I have days and sometimes weeks where all I will wear is historical clothing because I love how it feels. I feel 10 feet tall. I feel, I feel thin. I'm not a small guy. You know, I feel great. I look great. And I know people are paying attention. So during the pandemic, of course, I put on weight because I was stress eating and all of those things and no longer fit into 90% of my wardrobe. So I chucked it all. I like pulled it all out of the closets. I, I fully conmarried my apartment and every drawer emptied, every closet emptied and only kept the things that either fit or brought me joy. And let me tell you, it was not very much. So I started making my wardrobe and I, I, developed a modern garment. I'm wearing one of them now. I developed a modern garment that is reminiscent of my favorite 17th century garment, but it's a modern cut that doesn't look out of place. And I started styling it with a cravat every day, sometimes a necktie, sometimes a cravat. So I brought all of these sort of fashion stylings from history into the modern wardrobe, as well as developed cuts of clothing that are reminiscent of history, but are, are confusingly modern to anyone's eye. Like they won't be able to put their finger on it, but it's weird and it looks great. Like that's the goal with expressing myself. And I want to give people that kind of tool, which is a, a hard to learn, hard to earn tool. But once you've spent the time to really understand the language that you want or the, the feeling that you want to convey with your appearance, Everything that I teach should help you move along that goal. Selfishly, I'm at the point where I don't have a good enough understanding of fit so that even if I can picture what something should look like, I can't picture like what the difference is between this pattern and what it will look like on me or getting something the right fit the right way, so even in even in knitwear. So having the skills to translate what you envision in your mind into actual garments is, I think, a, a hurdle that I can't be alone in in not making, I'm not clearing yet. Yeah. And I think because I've been doing that for so long, I often forget how difficult it was to learn that skill because, you know, I started making my own clothes when I was a preteen. And I do remember 
not understanding why I didn't look like the guy on the front of the pattern envelope when I bought the simplicity pattern. You know, we're talking, you know, this is in the 80s. So everybody on there was like thin and gorgeous on the covers of all the pattern envelopes. And then I would make whatever and it would never fit me right. And I couldn't figure out why. And as I learned tailoring as a, in my late teens, then I started understanding fit a little bit better. And then after that, then I started learning how to make patterns. And once you start learning pattern making, you understand concepts of, of wearing ease versus style ease. They're two completely different things with basically the same name. Like wearing ease means like the amount of extra room you have to add in just so you can get it on your body. Right. It's for most garments, it's like two inches minimum through the chest. And that's like two inches minimum over your chest measurement is what you need just to be able to get it on. But then you talk about wearing uh, or style ease. That's the difference between a modern dress shirt that is kind of a slim fit with a very natural shoulder line the way we do them now versus the 1980s where it's loose and baggy and it's a drop shoulder. There's a whole different concept of what the style is supposed to be looseness or tightness wise. And then on top of that, you have what does your body need looseness or tightness wise to be the same to be the right measurement and how do you translate the feel of the style into something that makes you feel good as well. And so it's complicated. <laughs> um, I first knew of your work as a knitwear designer. You had a book called Knitting Off the Axis. And when you talk about ease, that's a totally different question in knitwear. But also those were those designs were, I think of them as being very contemporary. Do you think of them as being contemporary? I do. And they were intentionally so. It was my very, very first book ever that I had written. And uh, I felt so lucky to have gotten my proposal in at just the right minute that Interweave was like, hey, this is perfect for us at the moment. And I really enjoyed creating those styles. Like I was developing them at a at this transitional moment in modern knitwear, like fashion knitwear, because it was going away from something that was you know, cut like a shirt with a round armhole and kind of a straight body. Like we had been wearing that style of sweater for the previous 50 years, essentially, with a little bit of a blip in the 60s and 70s with bat wings and everything like that. Those styles were starting to come back into the market. And I was really excited about kind of the lack of need to do like a front with an armhole and a neckline and a back with an armhole and a neckline. I really enjoyed the idea of let's just use the fabric of knitting as an artistic medium. It was really fun. And I had always enjoyed doing things that were not your typical like bottom up or top down. So knitting off the axis just kind of came around because I really was working hard to find the weird way into the sweater. <laughs> so the theme of knitting off the axis, if, uh, if anybody isn't familiar with it, is that instead of knitting top down, bottom up, there was really a lot of emphasis on, you know, side to side or. Yeah. And it was, it was very intentional work to like choose a different direction to go in. And now when I look on your site, I do see some knitwear, but it, uh, it tends to be things like caps or vests. So kind of bringing together the knitwear and the more wearables, I guess. Yeah, I mean, my knitting was really the first thing that I learned how to do in terms of craft, right? I was six years old when I first cast on, and I have been knitting ever since. So it was my first love. So it never really got 
up until recently, it never really got wrapped up in the historical element. And I had done knitting off the axis, I think, right before I took a headlong dive into historical knitwear. You know, there's people out there that have written their PhDs on historical knitwear, and I was just stepping my toe in, kind of at the end of writing uh, Knitting Off the Axis. And there's some amazing stuff. Like, knitwear has been an industry for a long time. I mean, to the point where, you know, Queen Elizabeth enacted lots of different like laws and regulations to help keep her hand knitting industry and wool industry alive and well. But some of the expert knitting that I see in historical pieces is unreal. And I find it so inspiring. And the gauges are so tiny in so many cases. Like I went to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston for a curatorial visit, and I I asked for five different items, and they had 20 in the room when I showed up. They were just like, we just figured we'd get the rest of our early modern collection of knitting for you. And I was like, well, thank you. This is fantastic. (laughs) You know, but like the earliest production knits were in the 17th century. Like the, the knitting frame was developed in 15... I think it was patented in 1596 or 1586, one of the very end of the 16th century. And then it was quickly banned in England. And then they sort of show up in Italy and France after that. And there is a particular type of cardigan that is the pens. You can buy like these rectangular panels that are just straight rectangular panels knit on these knitting frames. And then you buy them and you buy a whack of yarn along with it that's in a matching color. And then you assemble it and then you finish out all of the edges. So... You take these rectangles and you form them into something that'll go on your body and then you knit the peplums kind of down and cast off at the bottom and then you knit a little collar on or the sleeve. and It's it's amazing. And it was such an industry. Uh, I could go into great depths with it, but I'm not going to talk your ear off too much about it. <laughs> Needless to say, there's machine knit versions or frame knit versions and there's also a few hand knit versions and you can really tell the difference when you're looking at them. The frame knit versions look machine knit the stitch consistency is so uniform and the there's zero shaping to any of the panels they're just straight rectangular panels whereas the ones that are knit by hand have shaping in them most of the time it's internal shaping that's like set in anywhere from four to six stitches from the edge so you can really tell like ah this one's done by hand you can see the irregularity of the hand knit stitches and it's amazing and i know i'm going deep into technical stuff here but it's just what i really really love you know trying to couple historical knitting historical lace making historical tailoring all of those things come together. It, that's what I'm talking about. Like, I love all of it. And one of the things I love about this time period and about most historical fashion is that I have a reason to put them all together. You know, historical knitting kind of just added this layer to everything that I already do with 16th and 17th century dress and exploring not only how it was an industry, but how it was how it was just used as part of casual day wear. Uh, so when I got the historical knitting into my hands it everything just started to make sense. And I really wanted to put all of it together. So, you know, I love particularly doing early modern dress because it gives me this excuse to do all of these things. I can do the historical knitting and the lace making and the tailoring and all of it and put it together and step out of my apartment and like take on the world wearing, you know, a 400 year old outfit. I made that. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of putting it all together, 
you sort of put together your your own sewing and handwork with teaching as well, right? Because part of the Modern Maker is also an instructional site. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, it's becoming the main site. My original site, themodernmaker.net, I've actually just kind of shut it down and, and locked it all up with a password. And now the only place you go is the Modern Maker Schoolhouse. And I'm really trying hard to get people to look at not just not just crafting as as a lifestyle because that's already out there people do it all the time but there's this energy behind resurrecting these techniques from history and making them relevant to what we do now and that's sort of part of my mission to make sure that these old techniques don't die you know when i started doing italian style needle laces from the 17th century i think there were four other people in the world that cared about it and we all knew each other and now with tutorials on youtube and the fact that i was making things uh, and a couple of other people have made beautiful things and we show people that accurate representations of historical lace are achievable once they see that it's not like those mythical people of the past who had magical skills that we don't not true you have a head and hands you can make something so I think showing people that it is an achievable skill then kind of blows the lid off of it and lets people say, well, if he can do that, then I can do that too. And then you put a tutorial out and you're like, and this is really, this is all it is. It's making knots over wads of string. Like, how is that hard? And then everybody's like, well, if it's easy like that, then I'm going to do it. Of course, you know, then they realize that it takes hours just to make one square inch. of it. <laughs> then there's a little bit of a learning curve. Abby Frankamont, who's a, a spinner who learned to spin in Peruvian Andes, has said something very similar that, you know, people say, oh, oh, they used to be able to do that, but 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 they can't do it anymore. And and it's true that in some cases they might have forgotten how, but or have decided that they don't want to spend the time, but of course you can do it. Yeah. And you know, different regions get very kind of locked away from other techniques from other regions. I think a really great example of that is I learned how to spin with a drop spindle when I was very young. And in my first years of college, my best friend and I used to go on road trips to the Southwest. And we went through um, Navajo Reservation when we were going through New Mexico into Arizona. And we stopped there at one of the trading posts and uh, I don't, you know, most people know this now, but Navajo spinning happens on a great big, like almost a yard long spindle. And it happens very differently than European style spinning. And I had my drop spindle with me and I was in the middle of making a length of yarn. So I just got out of the car with it and kind of walked into this trading post where I bought some yarn because they had some Navajo spun yarn there. And the the gal who was running the shop was like, I've never seen that kind of spinning before. And I, and you know, this is also pre-internet. So of course, like now everybody would be able to look up all kinds of spinning. So it was really interesting, like talking to her about how she learned to spin and talking about how I learned how to spin and what I knew about Navajo techniques versus European techniques. And just being able to share and connect on that level with somebody I didn't even know. It, it was just, it was really interesting. And I kind of feel that a lot of the techniques that I'm learning and a lot of the things that I have learned just from reading these old Taylor's manuals, those are those kinds of things. There's analogs to them, but maybe not exactly that thing. 
you know, the measuring and pattern making system that they used is mind blowing when you put it to actual work. And I started using it in all of my modern pattern making as well. And it has proven to be exceptionally versatile. How did you learn how to spin? Um, with dropping a spindle an awful lot. Uh, <laughs> there is, I grew up, I grew up in Lawrence, Kansas. So anybody who's a big enough fiber nerd knows that the yarn barn, Kansas is there in Lawrence. And that's the first place I ever like came in contact with good yarn. I think I finally could afford to buy my first ball of yarn there when I was like 10 years old or something. But you walk in and sure, if you want yarn and knitting needles, they have that, but then there's fiber and there's spinning wheels and drop spindles and weaving looms. I mean, the place is Shangri-La for fiber nerds. And it was that I growing up with that, I was always looking for an excuse to go and get kind of closer to the weaving side of things and the spinning side of things. And, and spinning frankly was the, because I didn't grow up with a lot of money. Spinning was less expensive to learn than weaving and so that was kind of that was kind of like the booby prize was well we can't get you a weaving loom yet so here's the drop spindle and and fiber and oh by the way you can like grab plants off of the ground and dye it as well like that was my father's particular magic was knowing about handwork things he didn't really do them but he just loved to read so he had a lot of knowledge uh and uh so he would always encourage me to do that you know, your your mom was a painter and you had all these fine arts in your family. And yet it sounds like you really gravitated toward needle arts. Yeah. Um, and very much hands-on. Although in recent years, I've actually combined uh, fine art techniques with the textile techniques. You can see there's some paintings behind me. These are some of my paintings. Um, those of you who are listening, I'm chatting with Anne here in my studio and there are you know images of paintings behind me and I turn those into textile prints that I then use to make different garments and so yes my mother was a painter and growing up with fine arts in the household I think was wonderful but my mother was also very much a crafter she had gone to school for textiles and fine art and she was kind of doing both so she was you know, she would go into the, this was at Kansas university. They had big rooms just filled with weaving looms for all of the textile arts majors. And, you know, in the seventies, textile arts was really, really big. Um, You know, there's still so many great wall hangings all over New York that were made in the seventies. And so my mother was really into that. And so she learned all of these textile techniques and she would keep all of her books and all of her samples from those classes in this giant copper storage bin that we had in our living room. And as a kid, I was always fascinated by the bin. And then I kept opening it and I was like, ooh, yarn. Oh, it's squishy. Wait, what's this thing with these notes written on it? And so my mother's you know, kind of leftovers from her college career turned into the inspiration for me to really learn all these techniques. If it weren't for her, I wouldn't know how to pearl properly. (laughs) (laughs) So you make your living either in your studio or as a costumer. Do you take anything home to do for fun? Like what, what do you do just to keep your hands busy when you say watch TV? Well, that has changed a little bit over the years and it also depends on you know, what project I have going. I 
feel really, really lucky that everything that I do for a living is or has been a passion project at some point in my life, right? So, you know, I when I worked in fashion, I was able to do knitwear for fashion. I would knit sweaters for runway shows, and it was really, really fun. And I was getting paid to knit. So I thought that was great. And when I'm working on projects, there's always an angle for me to make money at it at some point. So it generally, like a project will start as a, a leisure project, as entertainment. So let's say that I've been doing research on a particular pair of gloves in a Dutch museum, and I want to figure them out. So the I want to figure them out passion project starts first. Either I spin the yarn or I find the right yarn and I start figuring out how many stitches, what's the gauge, how much fulling is going to happen afterwards, like all of these different things. Figuring out the puzzle is really fun for me. And it's somewhere along the line, it starts to transition into a work project saying, how do I create the pattern so that people can use it? How much am I going to charge for it? How long will it take me to write it? And there's this flow that comes from the leisure activities where they start and it moves into being something that is uh, financially feasible. That's something you have to think a lot about. Is there something that your hands just like to do? I mean, most of the time it's knitting. That's the easy thing. Or crochet. I don't ever make a lot of money off of crochet anything. The only exception being I sometimes will develop crochet patterns for 17th century style laces just so that people can have things that look great or trim something at home, whatever. But uh, most of the time it's knitting. I'm working on a crochet afghan right now with a pattern from the 1940s. That's fun. <laughs> that is fun. When you think about crochet, I don't think crochet had even been around very long in the time period you're talking about, right? Well, there's actually most people believe that it didn't even really exist in any great form until the 18th century. Uh, there is a lot of conjecture about how crochet started, but within the historical community, it's generally believed that crochet began as an offshoot of tambour embroidery. So for those of you who don't know what tambour embroidery is, it's a style of embroidery that's done with a small hook that goes through the fabric and creates a chain stitch as you work. And if you're doing tambour embroidery and you want to create something that has relief and you know, you're creating something that's free form, then you immediately pull that loop up off the surface and you work it in the air and you can create a three dimensional shape. And there most people believe that that's how crochet really took off. I believe that yes, that's probably one way that it happened, but I also definitely understand the transition of something that is like an accident during some kind of process that then someone is like, well, we need to be able to copy this and this and this faster. How do we do it? And somebody says, well, there's that thing you can do with a hook, right? Like lace is a really great example of that. You know, bobbin lace and needle lace were, you know, kissing cousins, right? And bobbin lace was developed specifically because needle lace took too long to do. <laughs> and, and it, it, you can really see at the time, in like the, the early 17th century, when bobbin lace really started to take off, everything is done in needle lace patterns and is copying needle lace designs. And it is ridiculously faster. <laughs> well, it's funny also because crochet is one of the few crafts that you absolutely can't do by machine, except for a slip stitch. So, yeah. 
So you released your first Modern Maker book several years ago, right? The first one came out in 2014. And how many have there been so far? There are four different books, right? Yes, four different books in the Modern Maker series right now. One of them is sort of beginning its own series, and that's the knitting one. Um, So it's called Knitting with the Modern Maker, Volume 1. The rest of them are in the the title series, the Modern Maker Volume 1, 2, and 3. And I'm I'm in the process of finishing up a second edition of Volume 1. That's so cool that you are finding new inspiration in for the last four centuries and also revisiting the work that you did just a few years ago. Yeah, it was my first self-published book. Let me be honest. Mm-hmm. There are so many mistakes because I had never self-published a book before. And a lot of the impetus for writing a second edition is not only to correct those mistakes, but also to just go a little bit further. Mm-hmm. It was originally funded through a Kickstarter. So I didn't have very much money to write the book, so it couldn't be very long and I couldn't take very much time to do it. And it still took a couple of years for me to actually finish the thing. But, uh, you know, I'm going back now and the manuscripts that I'm writing for different books keep getting longer and longer and longer. Uh, so I may just have to split things up into each one. Trying, I'm trying to keep them about 150 pages each. That's a good goal. Uh, so you have sort of a, a community that's grown up around your website and your books. What is that? What does that look like? So do people come and take online classes with you or how does that work? Well, when I have the time, I definitely teach the online classes. Uh, one of the drawbacks is that I'm self-employed most of the time, but then I also go off to work in film and television and I am the only one doing it. I, I do have someone that's helping me right now test my sewing patterns as I make them. But as a one man band, I tend to uh, have a lot of trouble like being consistent. Like I can't teach a class every month. I can't teach as much as I want to, because I'm just one person and I have a lot of other things to manage, but the community itself, it originally started back when I was traveling around the country, selling historical clothing to reenactors and at Renaissance fairs and those kinds of things. Cause what I do definitely, you know, used to fit into that, uh, into that box, but the community started there because I was working from research that people hadn't really worked as much from before for retail endeavor. Like I was taking patterns from these manuals and just making them in different sizes so that people could have them. And so there was the the start of this much more authentic silhouette and much more authentic cut to these clothes. And the community started there. And then as I grew and the internet started to take off, then it just became much more of an online conversation with people. People would email me asking about garments that they had seen another person wear. How did you make it? Where did you get the pattern for it? Can I get a pattern for it? And what I kept finding was that people wanted to make better clothes, but they didn't know how to make patterns. That was where the gatekeeping was, was the pattern making. And so for the longest time, I focused on teaching people how to make patterns and how to make them more effectively and more efficiently. And so that really started a chain reaction of people realizing the geometry of it is not as hard as everyone makes you think. Yes, of course, you have to think about a lot of different things with the body. And then I would teach people. And at the time, I would say, well, if I'm going to teach you how to do this, part of the way you pay me is to teach five other people. And so there 
I really wanted to foster this like teacher or I hate using the term, but a master and apprentice setup where I'm passing information along, but you don't get to keep it all to yourself. I'm not keeping it to myself. So neither should you. And requiring that people go out and teach other people uh, was part of that deal. And so the community got a little bit bigger and then Facebook happened and I had a business page and the business page really started to take off and I was fielding even more questions. And that's when I said, well, I'm spending two to three hours a day just answering sewing questions. I think it's better if I write a book and then I can just tell people, go to the book. Here's the book. (laughs) And I tell you what, since I wrote a few books, like the number of questions I have to answer on a day-to-day basis has definitely gone down. Oh, that's, that's the way it's supposed to work. (laughs) exactly i guess i was also curious um there's a i know you're you're working on various parts of your site but i noticed there are several parts that are behind a password wall and and so i guess that's kind of what i was getting at is uh yeah so it's actually in the middle of uh or the beginnings of a transition but uh i started my website on squarespace and there wasn't at the time there really wasn't a way to do subscriptions because Mm -hmm. i do put out a lot of content and what ended up happening is I started a a Patreon and I would have people sign up for subscriptions there. And then I would give them a password and that way they can get behind the paywall on the website. But now Squarespace has grown and there's a full membership capability available on the website where you get to decide the password, not me. And that is starting to grow a little bit. So I'm transitioning away from the Patreon and into uh, just having people subscribe to the website where I'm going to continue to build more content. It's going to take a little while to do a full transition, but it's, it's exciting and it's worth it. And the members all have access to a private Facebook group where we all chit chat together. We have a discord server where we all chit chat together and that happens as a community, more behind closed doors. There's a front-facing community like what I put out on YouTube and interacting with people there, as well as Instagram and my main Facebook business page. Those are all of my public places. But I like having this more intimate connection with the community because we all have a common goal of understanding, most of it is of understanding history and keeping these techniques alive and learning what is accurate and what isn't so that we can break the rules in the right way, air quotes, right way. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So as somebody who pursues a whole lot of different forms of handwork, is there one piece of advice that you think would benefit everybody across the board to do? Like what, what, what would you say, okay, you really should do this? Well, that is, that is a loaded question (laughs) for me anyway. Um, the thing that I like to to talk about is efficiency in the work. You know, I leisure craft has has a, a tendency to be very very slow. People don't mind being slow, but then they get frustrated with being slow. So, the best piece of advice that I can offer to people is to create some way of training yourself. Right? Like we know that athletes train; they warm up before they do their work. We know that musicians train and they warm up before they do their work. And it's to me, it's important to treat your crafts with some reverence because for somebody in the world, that is their livelihood. 
And so there's, I don't know, it's hard to explain, like showing this level of reverence and respect for the craft that you're doing and, and not treating it like it's something to, like it's something with no inherent value because it's made by hand. We we see the the negative side effects of this when people, when, especially when people talk about pricing their hand knit work. I see people like gorgeous sweater. How much should I charge to knit this sweater for a person? Fifty dollars, a hundred, and I'm just like appalled and saddened. I'm like, how many hours are you putting into that? And you're getting pennies for minutes of your life that you're putting into this. It is worth so much more. You are worth so much more than that, and. I think that that having a higher level of respect for what it means to be able to make something by hand. Sure, lots of people can make things by hand. Not all of us can make things well by hand. But I think when you respect the crafts that are coming out of you and you respect the generations before who have made their livelihoods from those crafts, then it gives you this sense of connection, not just to what you're doing, but you recognize the value of what you're doing, what it gives to you, what it gives to other people, and what it has given to people in the past. Wow. That that feels a little bit sobering. And I, maybe I'll sit a little taller then. <laughs> <laughs> I Being able to make something is magical. Like I think people need to understand that. And it's not just something that you do because you were stressed out. Like It's it's what we're made for, like humans, from the very first ancient moments that we became the people that we are, we have expressed ourselves through making things. It's helped us survive. It's helped us bond. It's helped us evolve. It's it's inherent to our humanity to make things with your hands. And I think that if, if you don't think about that at least once or twice while you're knitting a pair of baby booties, like, what's the point? <laughs> Other than keeping the baby's feet warm. I find that that's especially true in um, in spinning. You know, that's sort of like, this is one of the foundational technologies of humanity. And, and people are like, oh, spinning, they figured that out. And I'm like, but no, but wait, this is, we would be nowhere <laughs> if we hadn't learned how yeah. to make string. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Matthew. I will look forward with great interest to the second edition of The Modern Maker. Oh, thank you so much. This has been really, really lovely. And I appreciate you bearing with me as I like go off onto tangents. And as you can see with the, the way that I talk about everything, it's all so connected for me that, but that's perfect. Always bleeds into another. Thank you for listening to the long thread podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.